Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Politicana podcast. We are on episode 64 today. It is February 11th. My name is Tyler, and of course, I'm with my co-hosts, as always, Pratik and Nick. So starting with Pratik this time, how are you doing this week? It's good. Today was an interesting day. I thought Russia was going to attack Ukraine, and then I found out that that's all BS, and we don't know if Russia's going to attack Ukraine. But if you're in Ukraine and you're American, you need to leave now. Nick, what's your thoughts? Man, Pratik coming in with the public service. Well, last week, I mean, everyone was a vaccine expert. And this week, I think we're all going to put on our foreign policy hats. So strap in for a wild ride here because Putin is not messing around this time. And let's kick it off. So our first story is that Russia continues to mass troops on the border of Ukraine. Now, they've been doing this since December and before then. So it's been a couple months. So the big question is, what's new? Well, all of a sudden, all of these different countries, the United Kingdom, France, the United States, Israel, others, start to say to their citizens, leave the country, get out now. If you don't get out, we're not going to help you. Okay? So that's kind of the big news. And then, of course, there's a press conference at the White House, and reporters say, oh, PBS NewsHour reported that, you know, uh, defense officials say Putin will invade next week. Which, by the way, would be pretty bad rub. I mean, next Monday is Valentine's Day, dude. How are you going to do him dirty like that? Someone could be out at a restaurant smooching a little. It could, it could be a whole debacle. But in any case, uh, Pratik Tyler, again, we've been talking about this for a while, but it seems like more countries are taking it more seriously. And they're saying there could be a real threat of an invasion in the next couple of weeks. It's interesting because we're giving more advance to the, the Americans in Ukraine than we did to the ones in Afghanistan when that whole debacle went down. <laughs> but, but besides that, the fact that Biden's coming out and notifying people is understandable. We know there are ongoing tensions there. Things haven't really been changing. I'm sure we have some intelligence behind the scenes that maybe is pointing towards more of like a some action going on. But as far as the public's concerned, all the knowledge we have is the same we had in the previous weeks when we discussed this. So not much has fundamentally changed. But when you have news stories coming out, sometimes fake news stories, we have a 24-hour news cycle and media is constantly being outputted to the world. If one story catches fire, we can see what happens. Regardless of its validity, if people think that there's going to be an issue, we see what happened to the stock market, which was an absolute tanking after this story went through, even though it appeared to not be true in the end. So Pratik, what are your thoughts? So I think this whole thing, if you actually listen to the press conference, it was really interesting. Like, it was like, they were, it was more of a serious undertone than we've really ever seen in this kind of situation where they talk about Ukraine. But, um, what is his name? Jeff Sullivan, uh, Jake Sullivan, sorry, the national security advisor comes on and he starts talking about what's going on. And then he says, we want to be crystal clear on this point. Any American in Ukraine should leave as soon as possible and in any event in the next 24 to 48 hours. We obviously can't predict the future. We don't exactly know what is going to happen, but the risk now is high enough and the threat is now immediate enough that this is what prudence demands. Then he talks about uh, if a Russian attack on Ukraine proceeds, it is likely to begin with aerial bombing and missile attacks that could obviously kill civilians without regard to their nationality. A subsequent guard invasion would involve the onslaught of a massive force, and with virtually no notice, communications to arrange a departure could be severed and commercial transit halted. No one would be able to count on air or rail or road departures once military action gets underway. So this was very, very, very specific. And you're like, okay, well, you're saying that we don't know if an act, if like an act of military action is going to take place, but there is potentially going to be military action and we might, is going to be aerial bombings first and then missile bombings. And then, you know, you might not be able to leave the country. You might be on lockdown. Basically, we have zero clue what's going to happen. And it was just like, they're basically underconing how this is going to happen. They're saying it might happen. Then you have the PBS people saying it's definitely going to happen. So then they're like, there's no definite about this. It might not happen. But if it were to happen, it might happen during the Olympics, which yeah, is but that's currently the thing. going like, the White House, The White House is never going to end up confirming whether, like if some news media site gets the inside scoop or so they think yeah. on a particular topic and report something, they say, hey, White House, can you confirm that your inside sources have you been saying this? Of course, they're going to say no. They would never <laughs> say yes. They never have. <laughs> It's just one of those that you're like, okay, well, if you're if you're sitting there and you're like worried about this, you don't really know what's going to happen. And 
He also said this other thing, which I want to also say. I want to be crystal clear, though. We are not saying that a decision has been taken. A final decision has been taken by President Putin. What we are saying is that we have a sufficient level of concern based on what we are seeing on the ground and what our intelligence analysts are saying or have picked that picked up that we are sending this clear message. And it remains a message that we have now been sending for some time. And it is, yes, an urgent message because we're in an urgent situation. You're like, what? Are, he's like, all right. So the question was, do you believe Russia has all the forces to mount a full-scale invasion on Ukraine? And he's basically like... He was like, define invasion. What does that even mean? <laughs> and then, of course, like a couple a couple questions later, he's like, yeah, we think the likelihood of an invasion is low. It's like, okay, so you just said invasion yourself. What's what's the thing here? I don't know. He said a few things where, again, like I'm, I'm sure he's very good at his job and the rest of it, but he came out so hard because, Pratik, like you were saying, that was the first question was talking about what would happen in terms of a likely invasion and he's like i don't know what you mean by invasion but in terms of a military exercise action, <laughs> action here's what i think it's like dude you it literally playing semantics for no reason and you're gonna well, use I, invasion later anyway like give me a break i don't know if it's for no reason i think they used that language because of the phone call that the ukrainian prime minister had with the with biden which when he said you're striking panic with the people by the way you're announcing this to the world so don't be as cataclysmic in talking about it it's not an invasion they're just coming to take over our land (laughs) (laughs) but tyler that's my exact issue with him it's that that would be good and fine if that was a thing but to come out so hard and say this is not a potential invasion it's a military action and then a couple questions later, like literally 20 minutes later, just casually drop the word invasion anyway. It, it's like, <laughs> it sounds like he we, we all know time. what's going on. Like in terms yeah. of like, <laughs> I don't know, like the average person. Yeah, it, it would be a potential invasion. Like what else would you call a military incursion from one force into another sovereign country? It's an invasion. Well, yeah. then the other main thing that I mean, they always like bringing this up. I don't understand what the Democratic agenda is really. But he gets asked upon whether um, we're going to authorize more unilateral U.S. forces in Europe. And then um, Jake Sullivan comes on and he says, I want to be clear about something. The deployments of U.S. service members to Poland, to Romania, to Germany, these are not soldiers who are being sent to go fight in war- Russia in Ukraine. They're not going to war in Ukraine. They're not going to war with Russia. They're going to defend NATO territory consistent with our Article 5 obligation. Like, what is this stuff? Like, why do we keep bringing this stuff up? I really, it makes no sense. So, like, well, we're going to do all this stuff, but they're not yeah. going to defend Ukraine. That's all Well, because <laughs> NATO is framed as a defensive alliance. And so the second they start saying we're positioning forces as, like, a counter whatever when mm-hmm. Ukraine isn't part of NATO, which is how this whole thing happened in the first place, then, I don't know, that, that kind of freezes out that narrative. Although, and Tyler, I know you want to get in here, but I would just say NATO is a purely defensive force. I think that idea went away in the 90s when I forget if it's Article 4 of it where it wasn't very clear on what happened, but all the bombing that ended up happening in the former Yugoslavia, for example, in Kosovo and how NATO still plays a peacekeeping role there. It's like that was an offensive capability that wasn't just purely defensive there. So I don't know how you can say NATO is purely defensive when clearly like and granted there was a larger case to be made there. But um, it's clearly not a purely defensive alliance, even though that's what it was intended to be and what it is in, for, the, for the most part, aside from uh, former Yugoslavia. Well, you were wrong. I did not have anything further to say. Do you guys have any more comments on this situation, I, whether I it be wanna, Ukraine, Russia, or the press conference? I do want to talk about one thing. So there is this very famous like energy um, scientist. This guy's name is Daniel Jurgen. I read his book, by the way. He's a very well-read, knowledgeable guy. And he was talking about the semantics of what's going on with Russia. So he says gas supplies to Europe will more more likely be disrupted because of violence in the region rather than just a result of being weaponized. Russia provides more than 30% of Europe's gas, and Europe's gas markets are linked by a network of pipelines, some of which pass through Ukraine. Although OPEC Plus has decided to go ahead and return production output to 400,000 barrels per day for March, some producers could struggle to return to previous levels of production, said Jurgen. The reason why some of this stuff is worrying too is regardless of whether they go to whatever the Russian-Ukraine situation is, our gas prices right now are so expensive. So 
if this happens, our gas prices are going to become more expensive. And the reason why this matters is because we're not all rich people having driving electric vehicles. Most of us drive vehicles that are gas powered. So, are you speaking about Europe or are you speaking about <laughs> yeah, America? Both. The, the both. Both. Europe, so. But it's both. Because it's, I mean, look at it. Natural gas works like this. So it's like a big bucket. And that big bucket has all the different, like, you know, amount of, like, output that it has, which determines the price value for natural gas. So the issue that is going on right now in general is that there is an oil shortage in terms of how much oil is being produced, which is leading there to be really high oil prices and gas prices. Some of that stuff has come from America not producing as much oil and gas, but it's also come from a lot of these international pressures along around the world where countries like Saudi Arabia and OPEC are like deliberately reducing the amount of oil that they're producing and sending out. And the same is with Russia and Ukraine because Russia is the largest natural gas producer. So if Russia and Ukraine go into war, well, those that natural gas is going to be used on a lot of their own vehicles, which is how it's being projected. So then what happens is that this is only going to make gas prices more volatile, which is going to raise gas prices even more, because not only is there going to be all this consumer confidence that gets hit a little bit, you're also going to have shortage of supplies because majority of their supplies are going to be used for war. So... I don't know how this all pans into it, but I just wanted to bring that up because this stuff impacts everyone. It doesn't just impact, you know, people in Russia. It doesn't impact just people in Ukraine. It impacts everyone. And I mean, everyone can have their opinion about Russia. More people don't really care about Putin. Most people don't really care about the situation, but everybody in their country drives. So... In the end of the day, it will impact you, me, and everyone in the middle. So, like, I just think that that's one reason why this story is very important. Okay, it may impact us, but also if we decided that we want to make an impact and actually send troops over there, that impacts U.S. families as well, having boots on the ground. So to, to make that decision to say we're actually going to be standing up for Ukraine would also be something that we would have to think about and consider very deeply. Um, but with that, are you guys ready to how move do you, on? How do you guys feel about the conservative narrative that is, you'll see it from, what is it, uh, Kaylee McEnany, I think that's her last name, uh, the former press secretary for Trump, uh, where she came out and said, Biden can't even defend our own borders. Now he wants to defend Ukraine? Give me a break. <laughs> how do you guys feel about that type of, uh, that sort of thought? Look, it's, interesting propaganda. it's, it's not, <laughs> but. I mean, look, if you wanted to criticize every president about our border situation, it's to criticize every president with how we handle things, you can do it very well. Like, Democrats came in arguing about how, like, the border is not an issue and that there's not millions of Mexicans jumping across the border. And right now they're sending a bunch of Mexicans back in droves to Mexico that have deported, that have, uh, you know, immigrated illegally because they're like, they're all coming in illegally and we can't keep a track on them. Well, when Trump was doing that, he was like racist and a homophobe. And I don't know how homophobe has anything to do with Mexicans, but that's like part of the message. And I just, that's just what they do. So, like, in this situation, like, I get it. There's a lot of issues here. Um, but in the end of the day, like, you want to make sure that you're able to protect your country and you're able to protect everything else going on. So, I don't know. I think that, I mean, when Biden does it or when Trump does it or anybody does it, you can leave that same situation intact. All right, for the listeners, I promise we'll get to the honking Canadian truckers in the next story. But before we do so, I just want to say, Pratik, since you brought up Trump, a new record, we uh, brought him up 13 minutes into the episode, I think. But I just want to say, <laughs> like, Trump was the president who was like, oh, NATO is out of date. It's a joke. We're paying too much money. We got to get rid of it. And now we're pushing it all together. Like, oh, NATO is so important. It's such a big deal. We got to be more involved. Tyler, what, what are your kind of thoughts on that quick reversal, I guess, in the span of really less than a year from well, president Trump's to president? Well, always been a populist. He'll do whatever expedient, convenient at, at the time. And because he's no longer president, it's an easy way to take a jab at the Joe Biden presidency and the administration. And because of that, he's going to be doing it. And especially because it's more of a conservative talking point, like he's just going to follow. It's not that he always creates all the all the agendas of the party. He's willing to go along and go with the party on issues that... Maybe he is not feeling too very strongly about. And as a populist, I don't think he feels 
too ideological about many of these points. It's more about where is the opportunity for me to find a political edge. And in this place, I think he was able to find that edge uh, specifically by saying we need to have stronger NATO alliances. And even though it goes completely against what he was saying before, it doesn't seem to matter. And something like that, it doesn't really affect his base too much. I don't think they care too much about the hypocrisy there uh, because he's attacking Joe Biden and they like that. Well, let's move on to the truckers, although I would briefly mention that Putin... It was either yesterday or it could have been this morning. They mentioned he mentioned that, you know, if something ends up happening, if there's an active war going on in Ukraine, then Russia is a nuclear power and that that won't end well for anyone. So is there that was sort of like the implied threat of like, hey, if you try to mess with us on this, you know, it's actually going to be really bad for you and your citizens. And, you know, unfortunately, this didn't really get covered too much in the mainstream press. There were a couple stories about it. The rest of the stories were, of course, about a potential invasion, which is a much bigger story. But still, to have the leader of another country say, if something happens, like, we're not going to rule out nuclear war in retaliation, I think, I don't know, that is a little concerning to, to hear about. But I'm happy to move on to the trucking store if we want well, to get actually, to the honks. Let's, let's get Cheek's opinion on the fact that uh, Trump, now in support of NATO and what they stand for, even though during the presidential election and during his presidency, he was constantly calling out NATO, saying this isn't the alliance it was in the past. Maybe it's not as yet necessary or useful. Or useful. So what are your thoughts on that, Pratik? I don't know. I, I think that... I mean, every situation calls for something calls for a different situation. And, like... I don't think that NATO has done anything wrong. I kind of disagree with Trump in general on this. Like, I'm a strong believer in NATO. I do think that countries should be able to cooperate with each other to how to try to handle some of these issues that are taking place. But in the end of the day, it's not like their diplomatic dipl diplomatic tactics, sorry, um, is going to potentially achieve anything with the Putin situation. Otherwise, they would have been able to accomplish something and resolve something much sooner than it has. Like Tr Biden is talking to everybody. He's talked to Poland. He's talked to Finland. He talked to Germany. He's talked to everybody else that's literally in the planet in Europe. And in the end of the day. If Russia attacks any of these countries, if they attack Ukraine, Germany's not going to do anything. If they attack Poland, Germany's still not going to do anything. And until they attack Germany, Germany's <laughs> still not going to do anything. So, again, like, it's all great and all whenever we do have these all these <laughs> diplomatic negotiations and alliances in place. But, I mean, in the end of the day, a lot of these countries are dependent on Russia. And that's all that matters. It doesn't matter how well they can talk and how well they can communicate with each other with all these elitists in a room that are all going to speak at some Geneva conference. In the end of the day, it all matters what's going to happen in that situation. And in the end of the day, I doubt Germany is going to defend anyone and they're probably not going to defend themselves until they actually get attacked. So, like, that's the thing. And I don't think anyone's going to dispute me on this because in the end of the day, Germany is reliant on Russia's gas and they're always been reliant on Fritique, Russia's I gas. I will easily Man, dispute you on, on this. Germany. Okay, that's pure garbage. All right. So if all it's right. the winter time, then yeah, you, you have somewhat of a point because they are very reliant on imports from Russia, both their natural gas, their oil, etc. But the second your winter heating concerns go away, the second the brutal winter concerns go away and you get nice weather where, you know, it's not a huge deal. For example, if, if you don't have, I guess, let's say if, if you have like a brownout or something where you temporarily lose power, your AC gets cut, unless it's a super hot day in the summer, like you're not going to care. It's like, what, what, do they, what do they really care about here? It's like really cold days in the winter for heating, really hot days in the summer for cooling. That's what you need the natural gas for. And if it's not that type of weather condition, I think if this invasion, for example, happened in like September... I think Germany would be all on board to do something because they wouldn't feel it as much. It wouldn't be as big of a deal. I, I don't think so because, I mean, eventually it's going to be winter again. It's not like always yeah, going to be summer. Yeah, that was my thought. So like, and plus Europe is a cold assuming, place. It's not no America. Assuming the war takes that long. Yeah, but I think in the end of the day, they're only Germany's shown us throughout history, Pratik. They can, they can do some uh, quick, <laughs> quick smash and grabs. Yeah, I'm but after, oh after the Nazi situation, Germany hasn't really done anything. Their economy and their their economy is all they got. Their army their hasn't really good. existed. Yeah, I know. Well, true, yeah, but their that's economy the is the best thing that they yeah, have. Yeah, but they're rebuilding. They're rebuilding slowly, just like how Japan is starting to look see, at that more. I, don't, I just think that when it comes to Germany... Germany and France are the reason why all this stuff happened in the first place. In the end of the day, we can criticize America all day Wait, long. Wait, by what, by what stuff happening? What's by stuff happening? Russia, are you saying Germany Russia and, engaging and Ukraine? In more, no, no, but... 
by Russia engaging in more aggressive tactics, half of this stuff happens because of the countries that are in Europe are too weak to actually do anything. I don't think oh, France, dude, or Ru- France or Germany can really ever do anything against Russia. If Russia really was going to invade Ukraine, they'll invade Ukraine if America didn't exist. Like, America's the only stopping ground, really stopping anything from happening. And, like, we can criticize America all day. Like, I can criticize America getting into stupid wars and doing all this stuff and getting uh, getting into all these people's problems. But in the end of the day, if America didn't exist, like, the world would be very different. Because these countries that are, like, sitting around don't have a military. The only reason that they don't get attacked every year is because America's there. They always have some terrorist attack that takes place in Europe. Like, the reason why the country and the world is more protected is because of the United States. And we have military everywhere. If if the United States wasn't there, they would be forced to have their own military. So, like, they've just responded to the situation. No, I don't know. I feel like after, after the World War II ended, all these countries just became a bunch of pacifists. Like, they haven't done anything. There's been no acts of aggression by Germany. They're just... Because... Pretty, yeah, yeah there was thing. an That's agreement fair. that the United States would play that third party role so that All they right. wouldn't go to war with each other because that's okay. what happens throughout European history is that they have a big war they wait a couple of years one of the countries <laughs> says hey actually we used to be so great in the past we're going to go to war again and then they all kill each other again and then they wait a couple of years and there's another big war and they went to war for hundreds of years that's why still, people still hate on the French all over the place doesn't matter if you go to the UK Germany Italy whatever I get that they're friends but they'll still you know crap all over I- I just, they've been killing just, each other for hundreds of years but <laughs> i'm glad that we got day, trump in and you crapping on france so sorry Pratik, continue. <laughs> i just think that in the end of the day germany is not gonna do much to stop anything and in the end of the day nato is just an alliance in name only i don't have a problem with having alliances in name only because that gives them a wait a, why do you say that ukraine's not in nato so like this doesn't even have to do with that like, and that's if why russia in nato was attacked ukraine eventually like that's yeah, all Ukraine's that's stopping not in NATO. Them. Yeah, and they should put them in NATO because all NATO is is basically a like smaller version of the UN. It's not like they really do anything. It's not like when is the last time NATO has gone into war? The 1990s when they had the Kuwait invasion. Like really, they haven't done anything in like 50 years. My point is that they're not. <laughs> it's only 30 years. They're not. Well, hold on, okay. hold on. But isn't isn't the threat of this <laughs> defensive block enough to prevent conflict? And that's kind of no. like the point. You don't actually have to engage in conflict when you have set yourself up to, to say we're going to have this defensive front if you try to engage in any kind of war. I, I think that maybe, but the only thing really stopping any of these countries from doing anything is America. Like, NATO as a whole is not, like, and NATO as a whole primarily is made up of American forces. Like, let's be real. It's still America. Like, it's kind of like, all right, America is the one setting the stage. They're the ones providing a majority of the troops in NATO. They're the ones creating the strategies in NATO. They're the ones providing the finances to operate NATO. And, like, if anything, they're just, any everything is going on with NATO is because of america the only thing left is they're not headquartered in they're not headquartered in america so like my point is that in the end of the day like what is it is it nato forces or is it american forces in my opinion it's all about the same thing because if america didn't exist then nato would just have like so many people that they wouldn't be able to well, defend anything look, anyway. if america didn't army. exist they would all have land armies still that's how it would be. Every nation yeah, exactly. would still have large land armies. That was part of the bargain is that, hey, we would play this peacekeeping role and they would not remilitarize and then not turn Europe, Western Europe into another conflict zone. That was part of the deal. That was the bargain that was struck. And everyone's held up their end. So I, I don't see what the real issue is with the alliance. I think we've gone on a bit of a tangent here. <laughs> I, I guess the last question I have to ask is, Pratik, you've talked about all this alliances, how the U.S. was like, they're the main ones funding the troops. Is that all to say that we should be helping Ukraine not get attacked? Yes. Is that like is that like the larger point here? Like we yeah. should be there defending. They should be part of NATO because the U.S. should have an alliance with Ukraine to make sure that all this is prevented. I is think that what like the point? Ameri- is their government is stupid because Na- Ukraine is not a member of NATO, and they keep on like dodging the fact that they're going to defend NATO because of all this Article Five nonsense. But if Russia actually attacks NATO or attacks Ukraine, sorry, then but they're if not America- in NATO. Yeah, but if America doesn't do anything, well, they're still going to be pissed off that we didn't do anything. And they're not in NATO, so there's no obligation. But Russia attacking Ukraine is like the same thing. Is like The thing is that the only thing that's preventing them from attacking Ukraine is or the only thing that 
is preventing America from defending Ukraine is the fact that they're not a part of NATO. But the fact is that Ukraine is reliant on America to defend them. We're the ones that have given given them all this training, we're giving them all this military intel and all this equipment. Why are they not a part of NATO? What is wrong with these people? And Because Russia literally... has literally said that's the red line. If they join NATO, there will be a war. Yeah, but them that's not the joining <laughs> No, but Nick, them not joining NATO Russia's still going to attack them. So what difference does it make? Because if America's supposed to be like, set up as okay, a neutral buffer state. That was the idea behind it. But it's not a neutral well, buffer state. Well, but Tick makes a good point. If they're going to be invaded anyway, like our intelligence is obviously telling us things are heating up. We know things are getting worse. If it gets to the point where we're like, we know something's going to happen. Maybe they don't say it publicly, but they know. At that point, do we say, all right, Ukraine, we're going to, we're going to, because they've gone against the fact that you're a buffer state, we're going to intervene and help you out and make sure that they don't invade. Help who out, dude? Western Ukraine loves Western Europe. Western Ukraine loves the United States, okay? Eastern Ukraine likes Russia. It's pro-Russia. You look at the whole region that was annexed, that was pro-Russia to begin with. And I, sure, we could say sham election and the rest of it. But if you like literally look at a map of like where people's sympathies lie and where they wish they were closer with, like split the country in half. Actually, it's, it's more than half that's pro, pro-Western. But like the, the eastern part of the country is still pro-Russian. Like it hasn't been that long that they've been their own independent state free from Soviet control. They're still very much aligned in that part of the world as opposed to being closer with France, UK, whatever. I don't know. My, That's just my, my two cents. That's my old man rant, I guess. My my <laughs> only point there is this that if there's if that's the only caveat that is preventing anything is the fact that you know they're they're not a member of NATO. Well, Russia's gonna attack them if they're a member of NATO or they're not a member of NATO. And well, because, if Ukraine is half split on this stuff, why are we even worried about it? Just let Russia take critique, over Ukraine and be ending with it. Like, it's, it's what like, difference does it make? It's like, like how um, dude, you're America realist. is so America is such a wishy-washy country right now. It does this constantly. No, like, we're not. Why dude. don't why don't we make a decision? We never make decisions. And What's that's our why decision, all this stuff our decision our is decision? either to, we have two decisions we can make. Not do anything, which is basically what we're really good at doing. We already screwed up in Afghanistan. Here, just let Russia, Russia take over Ukraine and be done with it. That's one option. The second option is to go on full force and, you know, protect Ukraine. And not worry about them not being a member of NATO. Because that's your two options. Now, what, are, what is our decision. position? Our position is, well, we're, if Russia attacks, we'll defend, we will, um... We won't, we'll defend we won't defend. If they no, no, no. Yeah. But they don't say we'll defend. They do this. Oh, I, I, uh, um. But we will throw sanctions on them. We are gonna throw <laughs> tariffs on them. We're gonna sanction the hell out of Russia. So then <laughs> Russia never thinks about attacking anybody else again, and they're gonna be condemned. Like you're like, okay, but are you going to defend Ukraine? No, but we don't have an obligation to defend Ukraine. Like, what are we doing? We need to go. They're up saying with a we're gonna use soft power to try to prevent them from attacking. No, no, and not create. Yeah. They're gonna they're gonna engage with them diplomatically. That's the solution. <laughs> because engaging with them diplomatically has worked so far. You know, it's like the reason why nothing has happened is because they engage with them diplomatically and they threw sanctions on them. Like this is the problem with our country. Like I don't care if you agree with them, if you if you want to support them or defend them, or if you don't want to support and defend them, but make a decision. And if you don't make a decision and you're so wishy-washy in the middle, then it's like you're going to get criticized from the people that are all about defending them, like I am. And you're going to be criticized from all the people that are like, we need to not get involved and not get into foreign interventions. Because both sides are going to be equally pissed off at America because we didn't make a decision. And my point is that whatever you do, you have to make a stance. And this is why Biden is going to lose in midterms. It's because the dude sucks at taking stances. Regardless of whatever Trump was, at least Trump was hardcore and headstrong on what he wanted to do. With this guy, you're like, what does he want to do? He doesn't know. He's he's so wishy-washy that in Afghanistan, they literally took over the country because he didn't know what he was doing. That's exactly what's going to happen in well, Ukraine. And God forbid this happens in some other country, Biden's going to be like, I'm going to stall and try to figure out what I'm going to do. But we need to follow the laws and I'm going to stand up for whatever happens okay. and we're going to throw sanctions. Critique, you've gone on a wild rant. I love the passion. 
But to, to just connect off that a little bit, the fact that Biden's going to lose midterms, lose the presidential election, I think it's probably best we move into inflation talk right now, just because it has something to do with Biden's administration, or at least he's being blamed for it. So price rises in the U.S. accelerated by more than expected last month, pushing annual inflation up to 7.5%, the highest rate since 1982. Food and energy costs helped drive the increase, which left few spending categories untouched. Overall, prices of everything are increasing. The Biden administration is being blamed for it. Biden came out and said that they would be all hands on deck to win this fight, acknowledging that American budgets are being stretched in a way that create real stress on, at the kitchen table. And that's this, their stance, and that's what they're saying. But when people people aren't able to buy their food they were buying in the past or weren't able to spend their money and have it be as valuable as it was in the past, they're going to be upset and ultimately People are looking for their own economic interest primarily first. And when that's the case, someone like, like Biden's going to take a big hit as far as the polls go in this. So what are your guys' thoughts? Do you think Biden has any control over this? Do you think he maybe uh, caused the problem to some degree? Or do you think he could have prevented this in a better way? What are your thoughts? I'll let Nate go first. All right. Well, I guess you're going to hear my old uh, nursery rhyme of saying that, <laughs> you know, the, the president of the United States, very little impact on fiscal policy. We've got the Fed. We've got all these other institutions that are in charge of our monetary policy. And when it comes to, yeah, sure, we had Janet Yellen in the past, and I think she's back in some capacity here. But we've, we've got some oldsters, some old schoolers who are in charge here. And you know what? I hope they end up raising interest rates. I hope they end up doing something. Um, I think you said that everything is up across the board. I've certainly felt that. I mean, you go to the grocery store, I mean, although it has been a little good for my stomach, I think, because occasionally it's like, oh, you know, I want to get some sweets, I want to get some pie that's in my grocery store, and now it's like a dollar than it used to be last year. I can't afford this. I can't go get my pie. Okay, I've been pieless for like eight months now. It's terrible. Do I blame Biden? I don't think pie is the issue. Do it's I blame like all the Biden you eat for daily. my lack of pie? Yes, I absolutely do. <laughs> However, I think it's... A little bit of blame. I don't think it's a lot. I think if you, I, I ended up seeing some graph this week, and I hate to not end up citing this. It, it was some CNBC graph. They actually have pretty good graphics, but they took out um, a lot of the supply chain constrained industries, and they were saying like, oh, well, what's going on with inflation? If you're not in one of the industries that's the most top twenty companies, like most hit by this supply chain shortage that's going on right now in terms of shipping and transit and trucking and the rest of it, and if you take that out. Inflation, really not making a big dent in anything. So it's really the supply chain constraints. And I don't think that's something that you can necessarily like. I don't think you can put the whole pandemic and global supply shipping on the back of Biden and say it's all his fault. I think there's more going on here. All right. Well, so I, you could say, though, that the spending packages have had a lot to do with that. We have had several trillion dollar spending packages, and we've argued about whether or not they should be this big, not be that bag, big. But my question is, do you think that would have been passed anyway? I think the Republican administration would have done the exact same thing. Maybe they would have had less spending measures in certain categories, but they would have spent around the same amount of money. So I'm kind of with you. I'm not yeah. sure that. Was the President CARES Act Biden $2 trillion dollars or something? That was passed under the Republicans. Biden has passed less money than they did during the last presidency. And so if he got his bill back better passed, you could say, oh, yeah, look, it's all Biden's fault. But he didn't get that passed. He didn't have that big bill. He didn't have that win. And so without passing this major legislation, I don't know you, how you can dump it all on him when Republicans have spent more money in the past two years than Democrats. But then I know someone like Pratik may say, and you can elaborate on this, that they were paying unemployed people too much. And because unemployed people were being and paid too credits. much, there was too much money being pumped into the economy. Um, maybe that's I, I just don't see that as being the major contributor to this seven and a half percent inflation is quite ridiculous like i said only in 1982 have we seen these numbers so let me let me rebut both of you guys because i think that there's a lot more to this so the way i look at this all right so the democratic party not biden the Democratic Party, across the board, federally, statewide, you know, in different states, they have their say in many blue states, which that's the issue because they like providing welfare payments. Some of these are tax credits and unemployment benefits. The thing about tax credits, so I know this from my personal perspective. In the hotel industry, a majority of housekeeping and janitorial staff and anything dealing with a major 50% uh, of the hotel industry has generally always been done by Hispanic people. 
Hispanic people are very important and integral to the hotel industry. And this is across any hotel across the United States. Doesn't matter what hotel you're at. Same thing with restaurants, same thing with any type of business that does operate on some kind of minimum wage constraints, right? And generally speaking, Hispanic people are very, very good at their jobs. I think, I think that they do better cleaning jobs than Indian people do all day long. They're really good at their housekeeping situation and housekeeping jobs. Now, when it comes to child tax credits in places like North Carolina, I'm sure it's worse in places that are more blue than North Carolina. We're a really red state, apart from us always having a blue governor every four years, despite redistricting all the time. But in the end of the day, we're giving all these people $300 per kid. Now, Hispanic people tend to have more kids on average than any other racial group in our country. I mean, I might be wrong. There might be some statistics that might prove me wrong. But in generally speaking, Hispanic people tend to have more kids. Now, if they have four kids, five kids, three kids, well, in the end of the day, they're going to be making $900, $1,200, $1,500 per month in, the, in, in North Carolina. That's our law. We have a $300 tax credit law in North Carolina. Now, unemployment benefits. Same thing. You will have people that will come work for you. They may work for you for two weeks, three weeks, and then they will start coming up with excuses to not work. So they'll work for three weeks straight and then they will say, oh, I can't work because of yada, yada, yada. And then they will call out for four or five days because they want you to fire them. Then when you fire them, they'll go back home and will make double the amount of money that they were making working from us by them receiving financial compensation from the government and unemployment benefits. Now, the whole thing, all this stuff added together, you have supply shortages. Some of that stuff has come from COVID. Some of that stuff has come from the nonsense that I'm talking about, but it's a variety of different things. Now, the issue is that with the supply chain shortages, you're having the same issues that we're having in the hotel industry where you're having a lack of people. So there's, there's less people shipping stuff. There's less people packaging stuff. There's less people driving boats. There's less people driving trucks. There's so much shortages in that whole system. Now, on top of that, that's led to us paying more people more money because whoever's willing to work well, we're going to have to pay them even if we don't have the finances to afford it. So you're going to pay anybody to come work for you regardless of the price. And that same scenario where they'll work for two, three weeks and then quit, some of that stuff still continues. But we're paying people almost double the amount we were paying before COVID. And the revenue numbers are still not there. They're catching up. The economy is getting a little bit better in terms of our industry. I don't know about others. But the issue is that this, all this stuff has led to a hike in prices because if now the people that are milking the cows or the people that are like, you know, making the bread and people that are doing the wheat stuff and all of this like little small production capability stuff, if all that stuff is having a hard time finding people, well, in the end of the day, the prices of all the products are going to shoot up. And then you're having an issue getting people in the first place, even if unemployment rate is really low. Labor shortage is a huge problem. The labor participation rate is at its lowest levels right now. And all of that stuff is directly linked to the whole inflation situation because the last time it was this bad was in 1982. And prior to, 19, prior to 1980, Jimmy Carter was there and some of these same issues that existed back then are existing now, including oil prices being through the roof. So gas prices are so high that, you know, if you are actually poor, well, you're going to have a hard time being able to pay for gas because, you know, most people don't drive electric and most of us are not rich enough to have a private jet. So like in the end of the day, all of this stuff is all connected. I do think what you and what Tyler and Nick have said is true, but this is an element of it. I don't blame this on Biden, but I do blame this on the Democratic Party. Biden is the face of the Democratic Party. I'm not saying Biden is at fault at all. I mean, you could have had any Democrat and it would have been the same exact thing. I just think that all of this stuff may have been pinned by some of the trillion dollar packages that were there. But I also argue that if, if the Republicans were in power right now, some of those trillion dollar packages may have not been passed. But we don't know that. That's all speculation. But with that being said, yeah, sure, I do attribute some of the inflation stuff to the Republican Party, but I can't say that some of these additional issues that have happened have happened because of the Democratic Party being there. Because it's not anything about Biden, but some of these tax credit things, unemployment benefit things, you know, labor shortage issues, all of this stuff gets pinned onto a certain party that wants to pay people to sit at home because they don't want anybody to go work, and they're willing to pay people more money than we're able to afford them because, you know, we're not 
Taco Bell and can't afford $19 an hour. I mean, like that we're actual people. We have less issues. We don't, we're not a big corporation. We're not Walmart. And Amazon and those people are paying people right now almost 20 bucks an hour to package goods. Obviously, inflation is going to go up. And if inflation doesn't go up, it's weird because we're like, you're not making any more money, much more money than you're making before. And even if you were making more money, costs are so much higher that it all balances that anyway. Ms. Tyler says, if everyone makes more money, no one makes more money. <clears throat> and beyond all that, the, the one thing I think we can all agree on is the fact that the administration will be blamed for this, at least in part by a percentage of people, and that's going to influence the future elections. And that's just an inevitable consequence of this situation hitting everyone. Uh, so Pratik just gave a lot of information there. Nick, do you have anything to tag on there? He made a lot of good points. I don't really have room to rebut him. The thing I can say is, I'm just not sure that I'm not sure that it would the inflation wouldn't be six and a half percent, even if all that were, were to go and, away. And personally. Again, that's I'm not that's saying, my question. And I'm not saying y'all are wrong. I'm not disagreeing with anything y'all are saying, okay? I'm oh, not saying pretty, that pretty. Nick pretty. is wrong. No, no, all right, pretty, you just went on like a four minute rant no, saying why saying we're wrong. And then I was, you're like, but guys, no, no, but guys, but you're I not wrong, guys. I think Pratik's right here. I wasn't saying that you're wrong. I was just listing out my argument to why there is inflation. I think is a lot of variety of different things. It's not because republicans spent a bunch of money on a trillion dollar package like two years ago it's because the stuff actually going on right now like some of the but stuff, we also had a pandemic happen yeah, that obviously impacted the world in a but, way we haven't seen like that that has to be a major factor i think in what's going i think on. the pandemic matters but some of this other stuff got propagated more because of the pandemic maybe i do honestly believe there are people that would want to work that are not working and there's also people that don't want to work that are making more money sitting at home than they ever made working so like that's an issue and that's why unemployment rates down biden has a great hoorah moment but like in the end of the day we can't find people so what good is your low unemployment rate do like i'm just looking at it from my perspective i don't really care about what donald trump did it or biden did it or how bad biden is to blame i'm just saying in the end of the day i can't find people in this because of the economy being bad and i get it everything is bad <laughs> Yeah, and look, we're talking about COVID-19. We're going to move on to those truckers, Hong Kong and Canada. Thank you for that uh, tagline that Pratik wrote down. Nick, any final comments on inflation before we move on? First of all, I wrote down that tagline, Tyler. I'll have oh, you know. Oh, my And second of all, I would say, I mean, look, I agree with what a lot of what Pratik ended up saying. And as we're going to find out in this next story on the Canadian truckers protesting outside Ottawa, clogging up um, ports of entry with 25% uh, of the daily goods that are shipped between the United States and Canada, and just causing a huge mess and ruckus around town, those uh, troublemakers, I would say that has been one of the failings of Democrats in power. And I, on the one hand, we, we already have a shortage of people who are pilots, who are truckers, who are involved in global shipping out on the high seas that's already an existing issue and a lot of people were laid off and fired be at the early stages of covid but people you know they still kept going they still kept trucking uh, as the saying goes um and now you know with democrats in power or the liberals in power both in canada and the united states both where there's harsher restrictions and penalties for you to be unvaccinated or to not wear a mask and what have you now, you know, that's kind of cracking down further down the line in terms of truckers not wanting to transport all these goods. Because, for example, if they're entering Canada, what the Trudeau government ended up passing was, you know, if, if you're unvaccinated and you're transporting goods to Canada, then you got to quarantine for 14 days. And for a lot of truckers, that seemed ridiculous. Now, on the one hand, I would say, you know, get over yourselves. The reason why so many people looked up to you and healthcare workers at the start of the pandemic was there was no vaccine available. There was no treatments available. Everyone was freaked out and nervous and worried, and you were still doing your jobs and you were doing a great job at it. But now there is a choice. Now you have options. Now you have safe options. But the thing is you don't wanna choose these options. And so instead you've opted to go ahead and blockade things and protest things. I think that's totally fine. However, one thing we know from the history of this country is that both the United States, Canada, and other regimes hate organized labor absolutely hate it to its core and will break apart any strikes that happen on any basis. It does not matter whether you're a conservative, Democrat, whatever. If you are organizing, whether you are a union worker or a non-union worker, if you have a bunch of labor organizing and shutting down economic growth, 
then expect the full force of the U.S. government and Canadian governments to come down hard on you and break up what you're trying to do. Don't get all, you know, oh my God, we're so... Uh, this is over vaccine. Like, how hard is it to just get a jab? Seriously. I mean, at a certain point, you just got to say, oh, look, we've got tetanus shots. We've got, we've got so many other shots going on. Hepatitis shots, whatever. You need these to attend school from, from the earliest days of your life, okay? And for you to be like, oh, you know, I, I could see it. I could see the concern. Okay, early on. And I could see some of it now. But you know what, dude? You have an option. And if the option is, I don't want to participate in this. I don't want the vaccine. I don't want to play by the rules when it comes to inter international shipping. Then get out of the job and stop complaining. And that's it. I disagree okay, well, with Nick completely. Let, hold on. I'm going to let you go. But I want to first just read a bit of the yeah. article to give some context for the viewers. <clears throat> Um, so the Biden administration urged Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government to use its federal powers to end the truck blockade by Canadians. He was talking about the federal legislation, them not liking labor. Well, there it is. Canadians protesting the country's COVID-19 restrictions as the bumper-to-bumper -bumper demonstrations forced auto plants on both sides of the border to shut down or scale back production. For the fourth straight day, scores of truckers taking part in what they dubbed the Freedom Convoy Blockade, uh, the Ambassador's Bridge connecting Windsor, Ontario to Detroit, disrupting the flow of auto parts and other products between the two countries. The White House said Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg spoke with their Canadian counterparts and urged them to help resolve the standoff. You had Justin Trudeau meeting with the opposition party saying we have to respond with whatever it takes to end this blockade. You have the government actually seizing funds of donations from websites like GoFundMe. Millions of dollars of funds that were supposed to be going to the truckers saying that it was, used, it was being in service to be used for unlawful activity, which is not allowed. Well, it just continues on. Basically, everyone, you're right, both sides, the governments of the United States, the governments of Canada, want this blockade to end. It's causing tremendous economic harm. What I would say is that the, my opinion is I kind of, uh, I disagree with Nick because I don't really think this is going to benefit uh, much of the supply chain issue. It's only going to make it worse because I get it that they're like looking at it, it's like, okay, well, we need to stop this trucking blockade and yada, yada, yada. But the fact is that well, there's no reasoning to start locking down truckers for COVID restrictions because, you know, they're trying to prevent people from getting COVID. Because in the end of the day, that's only going to slow down the supply process. It doesn't benefit anybody. And there is a huge divide when it comes to, like, the rich people and, like, top, you know, notch administrative people over the people that are, like, the low-level workers. Because these people are just trying to make their ends beat. And in the end of the day, we need those people. As, as I said in my last argument... Like, we can't mind people. There, There's an actual labor shortage going on. Like, yeah, Trump and I'm sure Trudeau both have great unemployment rates being really low. But we can't find people. We're willing to pay them any price for this, them to work because we can't find them. So in the end of the day, like, why make this issue even worse? Because that's only going to like slow down the supply chain process, which is going to lead to products not delivering on time, which is going to lead to products becoming more expensive that are delivered. And in the end of the day, no one is happy. The people that are receiving the shipments aren't happy. The people that are delivering the stuff aren't happy. And then the governments themselves aren't happy. I really don't understand what's the big push by Democrats and by like people like Trudeau. Why, why have so many severe restrictions you're not benefiting anyone it's not like i mean you're those people that are truckers are not getting really into contact with so many people either they're only going to be in contact with whoever they talk whoever the signs off on their thing and then they're whoever like they meet at the immigration border it's not like they're going to be meeting so many people so i just don't think that it's ideal and it's not convenient it's just a way that the government is just trying to control stuff more than they need to control stuff and there's no way you're going to really restrict covid from any of this stuff anyway because if covid is going to happen it's going to happen it's not going to happen because like oh man you let all these few truckers in because you need those people you if you can't find truckers your whole supply chain issue goes down the drain and like dude these people that are all these people that are great in politics they need to think about this stuff well because their their approval rating is going to go down whenever these people don't get their supply shipments on time and they're paying more money for things for like common goods than they were before Pratik, we're dealing with covid today because of international travel. That was the root of all of this. And so, yeah, the truckers have some leverage, 
but over 90% of truckers are in compliance with this rulemaking. It's a very loud minority. It's not like 50% of truckers are out here protesting. It's a very small minority, but vocal minority. And I think when it comes to, oh, should we just kowtow to their demands and say, oh, we have a supply chain issue anyway, you have leverage, we're just going to cave and do whatever you want? No, bullshit. I don't think we should do that. I don't think, like, for example, the way it's pitted right now is like, oh, regular truckers versus other regular workers. I don't think there should be special exemptions, no privileged class, no protected class for these trucking for these Canadian truckers. For example, that's the reason why I get so pissed off when I see politicians who say, oh my God, we care so much about the mask mandates. And then you'll see Boris Johnson or Stacey Abrams or someone else in a photo shoot not wearing a mask after they lecture everyone else about it. Same thing with that guy over at CNN. I forget his name. His brother Chris was the governor. Cuomo. Cuomo. Chris yeah, Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo. When, when yeah. he was out there, after he went on air every single night and said, you need to wear a mask, you need to do your civic duty. And then in his own time, he didn't wear one ever. He was just walking down. He didn't care. Uh, that sort of stuff bothers me. And to say that, oh, truckers should have these special rules for them that don't apply to anyone else, I think is complete and total garbage and they should get over themselves. I think you're right on some cases. I still think, though, that in the private sector, we have to kowtow to the demands of all the people that are working. And there are people that, like, don't follow the rules. Some people don't even show up to work, but you still need them. So what can you do? Like, we have to do it in the private sector. So why should the government have, like, you know, special provisions and things? Like, whatever rules should apply in the private sector should apply in the public sector and should apply whenever they deal with any of these crises at hand. And I really don't think the government should, like... See, us boss people, the people that are actually employers, we have to do so much to count out of the demands of the employees right now because we can't find people. Why is the government special? They should have the same exact rules as everybody else. And the thing about the government, too, is that, yeah, it's great that they can say all this stuff, but when the same stuff doesn't apply, what is Nick is saying, then you're right. Everything Nick's saying on that aspect is correct. They should have the same rules apply to them as they do everybody else. And I think that when it comes to these truckers and when it comes to people and them trying to find people to do these contracting jobs, well, those people, they're also in limited supply because of the government themselves giving people a bunch of money to sit at home. So, like, whenever you're debating with the government, because if you don't count out to the demands of the employees, the government gives them more money, well, in the end of the day, why are you making it harder for the private sector that is just literally trying to ship stuff from one country to another? another because that's what's making your country run it's not running because of all this money that you're giving at home sitting to get to people sitting at home to you know not work because that's governments have sovereigns we're sovereign states here we get to control our own borders we're not going to kowtow to some corporation or some private entity saying i need to have special rules when i cross into your borders sure that ends up happening for economic reasons for example china where they had one state you know, two separate policies with Hong Kong having its own special economic zone, which, of course, now politically is all moot after what's happened the past couple of years. But for example, if the United States required, let's say some deadly disease broke out in Mexico, and I get it, COVID's not a deadly disease on the order of like, it's going to kill so many millions of people, that's not going to happen. But let's say there was a really serious illness coming out of Mexico, would I want us to have the same sort of hardline stance on the southern border? Yeah, I would. And I think that would be perfectly fine because the United States, again, as a sovereign state, can control its own borders and set its own policies for anyone coming across, not just the truckers. This doesn't just apply to them. It's everyone. I just think that, you know, whenever we're having such a hard time finding people, why create more restrictions on them? Because in the end of the day, if we don't have those people, then your prices are already going to go up and your inflation issue is going to be worse. And it's not going to just hurt us. It's going to hurt everybody. I think the government is basically saying we care more about the health aspects than we do with our economy at this point in time. But that's the problem I have is that's where I, di I disagree with the government's mandates in the first place, the vaccine mandate. So that's where I'm having trouble with this whole situation. But as far as sovereignty goes and like, it's our our place, our rules. I understand that. It just seems like you called it a vocal minority, and maybe it is, but it seems like there are a lot of people angry about the actual mandates themselves. I'm not angry that Canada has their own set of laws. It's, I think Canadians are angry that they have these laws in place and that they're too restrictive. We're two-plus years into this pandemic now. The, the amount of death rates are way, way, way lower than they were in the past. The newer variants are not nearly as deadly as they were, so I'm not quite as sure why the the 
the health is outweighing the economic gains or losses at this point. And when the economy sucks, everything else sucks with it. Because, I mean, like, yeah, the COVID stuff, it might be bad. But the thing keeping all the governments in power and people, the things that are keeping everybody happy is the fact that all these idiots are able to pay taxes. When, when all these people pay taxes, how do they pay taxes? With an operating economy, which how do they make money? is going to be because of an operating economy. So now, if all that stuff is in place, why why is the government being all weird about this stuff? Because in the end of the day, those truckers are what's making these other idiots that are wanting all risking their health is able to keep them stay at home. It's, it's not because the government is getting all this money, because where does the government get their money from? The people working in the economy. So I think it's all connected. Like, I really think the government is just like kind of stays on this elite path and they think they're better than everybody else, looking at everybody else down at a pedestal. But in the end of the day, all those people that are the low level workers are what's keeping them in their position. So like that's what's giving them the salary and that's what's allowing the country to operate. So you need to make it so the low level people and the lowest people in our society and the people that are making the least amount of incomes and the people that are having the most struggles have less struggles. And the way you can do that is by reducing some of these restrictions that are in place so that regular people can go back to work. Nick, are you pro-union? Oh, man, that's a big I'd rather not say. But, but you would <laughs> really you rather not say. That's fine, but like you understand, this situation is just like it's basically it's 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 a cohort of employees saying we will not stand for this. It's not right. We're not going to work to provide you with the value that we provide because you're not giving us any kind of leeway. So yeah, I I feel me, differently. It's like, it's like a work, It's labor. almost like a workers' rights. Yeah, I so. feel very differently in terms of organized labor when it comes to something as necessary as international, interstate, and other commerce and shipping. I think that is incredibly important. We, we see what happened with the railroads. We see what happened with the coal miner strikes in West Virginia. We see this throughout history where they just get cracked down on a ton. And for good reason, frankly. Um, <laughs> I don't think you should be able to bully the rest of the country just because a small minority of people is like, oh, my God. For example, like all the public sector workers protesting in Puerto Rico right now, like get over yourselves. You're public sector workers. Like I, everyone deserves dignity, whatever. But when you're earning more than the median income in your place then I don't think, you know, you should really be complaining too hard when you have it better than the average citizen who you're representing in your job. Um, but <laughs> that, 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 that diatribe being said, I think if it was something like an Amazon warehouse, I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, unionization, that seems fine to me. But when it comes to something like this, and look, I can, for all I came out against the truckers, I think fundamentally... I think what the Canadian government is trying to do here, I think it's a bit too much. I think if you really care about this stuff so much, just make it so that, I mean, we've subsidized plenty of this stuff in terms of testing in the United States and the Canadian government's subsidizing it too. Why don't you just have some of the newer PCR rapid tests? So with all that said, what are your final thoughts on this situation, guys? I would say as much as I hate it on the truckers, I think it's still some pretty funny memes that um, with all the protests for BL, which... I, I was actually in favor of and not as much in favor of the Canadian protests. But, you know, it is funny online seeing how, you know, a year ago, it's like, oh, cities are up in flames. There's looting. There's all this rioting and, you know, protests all over the place. And it's like, oh, guys, don't worry about it. Protests are a good thing. No worries. And then now it's like honk, honk. Oh, my God, this is fascism in person. This is terrible. It needs to be get, gotten rid of immediately. So I just think that part of it is funny. I think the honks are funny, even though I disagree with the whole premise of it. But just wanted to say that is my, uh, I guess, olive branch. Pratik, what are your thoughts? I, I think the same thing. I just think that, I mean, governments just need to do a better job at understanding what the issues are for the lowest, like, you know, the people that are at the bottom class in every country. And the fact is that a lot of people are struggling to make ends meet, so they are working whatever jobs they can. And I just think that you shouldn't restrict people more than they're already restricted. Because if you keep doing that, the economy is never going to get out of the same situation that's in. Like all the complaints that we have about, well, that I complained about, about how the labor shortage is bad and all this stuff, a lot of that stuff is propagated to some extent by COVID. And some of that stuff is propagated by the government imposing more restrictions. And some of those restrictions have led to more unemployment benefits and more money giving being provided to people to work at stay at home so i just think that all of that stuff is connected and i think the first thing that we have to do is the government has to understand what the situation is from the people at hand 
in the country. And yeah. Pratik, I, and, and I, I wanted to say the yeah. ironic thing about that is that in terms of protesting against government overreach and authority, in response to the protests, the Canadian government has given themselves more power. <laughs> so I just think it's backfired <laughs> in a way. But Tyler, what were you going to say? Yeah, I actually wanted to just point out one thing mentioned in the article. I mentioned it before, but they had raised fundraised like $8 million that was seized by the government because they essentially said it was causing civil unrest and was unlawful. Do you think the government had the right to seize that money? Because you say the government getting more power, that's an instance of are they protesters or are they causing a civil disturbance that uh, deserves to have their funding taken away? Because I think that's probably a significant part of the conversation. They feel like they're lawfully protesting an issue that they should be able to protest. And now the, the government's coming back and taking away their funding. That could be seen as a tremendous overreach. I just think the government gets greedy. And the government's like everybody else. And I think the problem with the government is that the government doesn't realize that they're paid for to be civil servants that are representing the people. And their money comes from everybody else in the country paying and working and, you know, giving taxes to them from that money that they worked for. Well, what if the citizens of Ottawa don't like the truckers in general? <laughs> I guess then they're representing the people, dude. But yeah, this the seizure of money of private funds transferred from private individuals to another private individual, that, that is slightly concerning, though. Yeah, $8 million so, I mean, is a lot of money. Buy a lot of gallons of gas with that. Hey. A lot of honks, some big horns. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see how this thing progresses. It's been going on for a little while now, but I'm sure next week we'll have some sort of update, hopefully a resolution to the situation one way or the other. Uh, but with that, I think we're going to be closing out the show today. So that's episode 64 of Politicana, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm not quite sure if this is going to be posted before or after the Super Bowl yet, but like, have a great Super Bowl, have a great weekend, and we'll catch you next week. Later.